Hey, it's Dominic and you're wishing you a happy new year. We are giving Fred and Doug the day off today and we're going back to a broadcast that they did earlier this year, The End of Evolution Part 1. Hope you enjoy. Let's jump right into the broadcast. Intelligent design and DNA Scholars can't explain it all the way Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Real Science Radio. I'm Fred Williams. And I'm Doug McBurney, Bible student, amateur comedian. It's great to be back with you, Fred, talking about real science on Friday. So, Doug, when we were at the ICC conference last summer, I attended this really good talk, and the guy was named Dr. Andy McIntosh, and his talk was titled Language coded instructions and the interaction with thermodynamics it was a really good talk i recommend if you can go watch that so at some point in the talk he gave a really glowing shout out to a guy named sal cordoba who's this up and coming and actually been around for a while but he's a really dynamic creationist doug do you recognize the name oh yeah sal cordoba i see his posts up on the crs net forum from time to time he's always got some interesting and Cutting edge comments, 98.7% of them being over my head. And uh, <laughs> so I did some digging, Fred, and it turns out Sal has four and a half science degrees, including an MS in applied physics from Johns Hopkins. He's presently working on a PhD. He's also one of the few creationists to ever appear in a cover story for the scientific journal Nature, which covered his work on behalf of intelligent design. Yeah, and I was looking at his bio, Doug, and I see he was also a scientist and engineer in the aerospace industry and presently serves as a professor and researcher in the area of Christian apologetics at Bible College. So I'm hoping, Doug, that he'll join us on Real Science Radio sometime. Well, Fred, today's the day. It's my privilege to welcome to the Real Science Radio airwaves, Mr. Salvador Cordova. Welcome, Sal. Thank you. Thank you for that glowing introduction. Yes. Well, Sal, I just noticed that you've gone from academia to a Bible college. So congratulations on graduating into the big leagues. And uh, <laughs> well, can, can you actually, tell us how you got there? <laughs> well, actually, that may have been a dated bio. That's no longer the case. However, I am looking at an engineering PhD, a dean of a good engineering department had a conversation with me yesterday morning, as a matter of fact, and wants me to enter a doctoral program. So thank you for calling me professor. I do teach. <laughs> and I think that was actually, that might've been a bio I'd written some years ago when I was planning, you know, a deal was cut and it, it kind of fell through for me to teach at a Bible college. But I, I love teaching. I teach now on the internet. I, I probably torture the listeners with some of the stuff that I teach because it is kind of like an academic environment where I where I would teach from textbooks that you would expect for physics and chemistry students and engineering students. Yeah. So I do have a reputation for torturing my <laughs> my viewers and I hence I don't have many viewers. Well Sal you've got <laughs> I noticed you have several debates on the internet and I actually watched one of those and it was really good. You were debating a guy named Dan, some scientist named Dan on genetic entropy. 
Because I think you did some work with uh, Dr. Sanford, right? Doug and I met him at the ICC conference, John Sanford, and that was uh, that was a really good debate. Well, thank you. Dr. Sanford is actually a famous genetic engineer yep. and a research professor from Cornell, an Ivy League school. Yes, he is very privileged. Not only is that an elite school, he was very privileged not to even have to teach classes. They wanted him so bad they recruited him and all he had to do is research because that's the professors a lot of professors dreams is not to be teaching but to be doing research and right. yeah and he was an atheist yep. he became a christian then he was a theistic evolutionist after he became a christian and it was about a 10-year journey he became interested in id then an old earth creationist and then a young earth creationist I had the privilege of working for him for about seven and a half years wow before moving on and the beautiful story about that is when my mother was widowed, I took care of her for 18 years. I left my job in the aerospace and defense industry as a senior engineer, partly to take care of her. The last years of her life, she went home to be the, with the Lord, April 30th, 2021. I needed a job and Dr. Sanford hired me as his research associate and I could work from home. And, and I'm still relatively unknown in the creationist and ID community because some of our publications were so specialized. Yeah. I often thought, hey, John, you know, I think only 30 people on the planet know or care <laughs> what we just wrote. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, it's going to be important. It's going to be foundational. And that's starting to come true now mm. because now I'm, I'm realizing it's going to be some of the research we had to make sure that what we were saying that, that I personally, at least for me, wanted to communicate to the general audience is actually accurate that it would actually stand up in academia and i'm i'm more confident than ever that we can do that a lot of it didn't necessarily have to do with anything we did but there's been so many experiments in laboratories around the world that showing evolutionary theory is infeasible and we can cover that so yeah, yeah. And, and is this research is this all in the area of genetics the research is it's being done by people trying to promote evolutionary theory and it is in the area of i wouldn't just call it genetics it's just basically trying to see how things change and there are numerous papers now i'll give you a title gene loss by natural selection that's one gene <laughs> loss by natural selection yeah. okay <laughs> one by lensky Richard Lenski, and it's really funny, normally he'll, he'll, he'll take a premier spot. He, he buried his name in this particular publication in the middle. And it's like, <laughs> are you kind of embarrassed about this title? Part of the title says, Genomes Decay. Genomes Decay, despite wow. the yeah. fitness gains. And what was and this I, published I, in? It was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. <laughs> and I'm just like, you ID proponents, this is sometimes, I mean, this is why I get in trouble. I, I'm just like, guys you're having this handed to you on a platter and sometimes you're just missing it yeah. and i'll even repeat it of course i'll be accused of quote mining <laughs> and I, i'm just like okay so let me get this straight the supposed fitness which is really the reproductive efficiency okay the reproductive efficiency of bacteria is improving because its genome is decaying and yeah. i'm like I mean, just like, okay, I studied under a evolutionary biologist for a graduate level bioinformatics class mm -hmm. at the FAAS graduate school at the National Institutes of Health. 
And he's a staff worker for Eugene Kunin, who, in my opinion, is the best evolutionary biologist on the planet. In my opinion, other people may dispute that. But mm-hmm. I think he has 400 publications. He has a staff of 30 biologists working for him. And he's doing whatever he can to defend and articulate evolutionary theory. He's actually well regarded by intelligent design proponents because he'll have moments where he's fair-minded. And yeah. one of those moments, he wrote this, he co-authored a paper with Wolf, says Wolf and Kunin, that says genome reduction, genome reduction, which means loss of genes, loss yeah. of genes, yeah. genome reduction as the dominant mode of evolution. <laughs> and then well, there's another title by John J. Welch, What's Wrong with Evolutionary Biology? And I said, guys, look, I'm going to disclose my age here because when I started looking at the evolutionary, the creation evolution controversy 40 years ago, we did not have the abundance of stuff we have today. Mm-hmm. It is so easy to say, what a lousy theory this is. I don't have to co-creationists. We don't even need to quote the Bible. The theory is self-destructing. It's just like, you know, if I wanted to debate this, and you asked about Dr. Dan, and there was a moment in that two-part debate, I said, Dr. Dan, can you name one geneticist that is telling us he thinks the genome is improving? And he gave a non-answer. And I'm like, do you not get it? No yeah. one is saying we're improving. <laughs> I mean, this was all about whether the human genome is decaying or really presumably improving. And I asked him, can you quote one guy? Can you quote one guy of some reputation that thinks our genome is improving? And you, you got his non-answer. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So did this all lead this work with Sanford? So you're talking about the genome deteriorating, you know, over generations. So he wrote this fantastic book that was one of my favorites. I mean, it's probably in my top five, and it's Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome. So was your work with him, is that what led to him putting this book out for creationists? Because it is so good, and it was the topic of your debate with Dan. Actually, no. I joined his foundation in 2014, and he wrote the book in 2005, and I'm just like, Oh, well, gotcha. is, well, that's boy, right. time flies, doesn't it? it? I guess it has been. It, it might have been 2004. It might have been 2004. Yeah. I just, as an aside, his first edition of the book had a little spaceship on it. Yeah, I'm looking at and, that right and, now. Yep. <laughs> and it's so funny because I wanted him to autograph that one. I'm sorry to give you an aside here. The Rielians called him a high priest of science. <laughs> they were so admiring of his work. <laughs> they nominated him to be the high priest of the Rielians. Anyway, I got to work from him from home. And so a lot of that was computational. A lot of that was just research. Mm-hmm. But we have a publication that's in a book that retailed for $1,500. It's now on university shelves. So probably that was one of the bigger accomplishments, we were able to break through the peer review barrier. I think it was the act of God, honestly. What had happened was he and Dr. Bill Basner, emeritus professor of mathematics. So you have a great geneticist, you have a great mathematician. They published in the Journal of Mathematical Biology. That got some press on it. It set records by like a factor of four for the number of downloads. The editor was like, what happened? (laughs) This paper just kind of blew you know, just kind of dwarfed all the other papers Mm -hmm. in that journal. It happened to be a Springer Nature journal. 
And so it caught the attention of the right people. That was published, I think, in the latter part of 2017. One of the editors of a Springer Nature publication approached us, approached Bill Baster and said, write on anything you want. And Bill Basner approached me. He said, I don't really have time to do this. And I said, Bill, he said, write on anything you want. We're not going to have another chance. Most ed- you know, most of the time you're submitting stuff and the editor is saying, ah, I don't like it. Goodbye. He's approaching us. He's saying, write whatever you want. And he specifically cited that publication. It was on Fisher's Fundamental Theorem of Natural Selection. Fisher's Fundamental Theorem of Natural Selection. It'd been around for 100 years. Yeah, okay. And Richard Dawkins, hmm. give tribute to Richard, oh, Richard Dawkins, he said, that's the central theorem of biology. Yeah. <laughs> of course, if you go around asking biologists, do you have a central theorem? They're like, huh? And you'll even see on the Royal Society website, it says, a Fisher authored biology's central theorem. Is this getting to the whole gene loss by natural selection? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> because it's it's a whole mythos. It's a whole mythology. Mm-hmm that was perpetuated by all this mathematical theatrics. I started looking at this and I was just like, okay, Bill, I'll help you out. I started writing the chapter. It ended up being a 70-page chapter in a book entitled Mathematics and the Arts and Sciences. I'm pleased to say it got published by Springer Nature, which is a respectable publisher. They were selling this book for $1,500. Okay, it's like a 2,500-page book. We wrote a 70-page chapter within that book. By the way, just… It's almost a dollar a page. Yeah, just for clarity, <laughs> I don't get a dime. I don't, I don't get a dime if you buy the book. I mean, yeah. I know some, some generous people that want to help me out. The publisher gets all the money. We get the privilege of just being published, and we got some free perks, like you can get all our other books for free, which was nice, okay? Yeah. All our really expensive books, you get access to them. <laughs> so that was the perk they gave us. It's on university library shelves. We got a, a fourth co-author. That's Ola Hosger. He's a Christian. He's an award-winning mathematician in Sweden. They gave him the nation's highest award in mathematics. Hmm. And he's also a population geneticist. Ooh, you could wow. not ask yeah. for someone more qualified. Oh, so absolutely. we had... John Sanford, by the way, John Sanford's invention is in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Doesn't get much better than that. Exactly. Doesn't get much better because his invention improved crop yields. It's related to genetics. He invented the gene gun. And we speculate it's probably helped starving billions. I was the dumb kid on the block on this publication. Yeah. It's an honor to work with these gentlemen. I insisted early on, I said, guys, we're going to get shot down if we cite creationist stuff. You know that. We're going to cite mainstream literature, not by the obscure guys. We're going to cite the very best. That would be Joe Felsenstein, Richard Lewinton. We were shocked. I said, oh my goodness, there's so much here that you won't hear in the popular press, but these are by the top guys. I said, there's no reason they should give us a retraction because we're going to cite their own literature, we're going to cite it fairly, we're going to cite their textbooks. Yeah, and you know, to kind of put this in context where some of the audience could understand, I remember way back when, when James Crow, he was this prolific writer for uh, Nature magazine, and he wrote about how the human race should be going extinct. And I actually emailed him, and I I sent him, which is really pretty basic statistic, it's uh, Poisson distribution, because you mentioned it earlier, you know, the fitness how in the number of offspring 
a species can have. And it's actually not difficult math. And based on his own numbers, if you put his numbers in, and they were real favorable for evolution, each breeding couple would have had to have 40 offspring to even break even. And I know you've done extra work. I think I saw it in your one of your debates where it's actually, when you get right down to it, and now that we know more about the genome with ENCODE and whatnot, it's like 40,000 offspring. Oh, it's, you, it's worse. Yeah. It's worse 40, than 40,000 offspring per breeding couple. And you want to believe in evolution? That's why I started my website long ago, Evolution of Fairy Tale for Grownups, because that's what it is. It's a fairy tale. You have exactly. to believe in a fairy tale to think you can have 40,000 offspring per breeding couple. Let me tell you, that's the optimistic number. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when Crow uh, okay. back then, even it was, 40 it was, was way okay. too optimistic. Now, wait a second, gentlemen. <laughs> now, before you go any further, for those of us who are laymen, you have to have 40,000 offspring to break even with what? To not deteriorate, to maybe even have a okay. chance to grow a tail. Oh, the gene law. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You see, the this this loss. seemed outrageous. But what's happened like in the last five, 10 years, we're seeing experiments. And now that we're sequencing human genomes, we're seeing it. Yeah. So this was a theoretical prediction, and when John Sanford came out with his book, we were kind of uncomfortable with what we were seeing, and there were all these predictions, but now we have so many genomes of humans because we're tracking diseases, and I was at ENCODE conferences, one ENCODE conference in 2015. Hey, can and, you tell our audience like, what's ENCODE real quick? It's the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements, something like that. I'm yeah. sorry if I get the... Yeah, and but it's a project looking is, at the genome, right, of the human right, genome. Okay, it's a little funny. They spent originally something like $2 billion, $4 billion to sequence the genome. It's like, okay, now we have the human genome sequenced. It wasn't completely sequenced, but mostly there. And it's like, well, now we have to figure out what we have to do. And so they gave them a small budget, and it's kind of laughable now because it's like, I think you're going to have to spend many factors more to figure out what this does. You know what it says, but now you don't know what it does. So right. ENCODE was the first big attempt to figure out what it does. And we're still figuring out what it does. I don't think we really know hardly anything next to what we can possibly discover. That was the big deal. And so and I remember a quote that you showed in your presentation, and I'm pretty sure Dr. McIntosh showed it at ICC. And that's a scientist, an evolutionist said, if ENCODE is true, then evolution is false. He said it angrily, apparently. <laughs> yes, that was Dan Grauer. And so okay. when, so Doug was asking about that 40,000 number, if I could explain it. Yeah. It's actually pretty easy. When we look at the children, they're all a little different from each other, from the same set of parents. Each child inherits different traits from their mother and father. Now, Nobel Prize winner Herman Mueller was the one that started all this because he won the Nobel Prize studying the effects of radiation on subsequent generations. He's very concerned about mutation. So the natural question came up, what is the tolerable mutation rate? What is the tolerable mutation rate? So what will happen is, let, let's say mom and dad each have a slight defect they pass on to their children. There's a chance, and you see this kind of when we, we talk about heritable diseases, there's a chance that one kid might not inherit it through all the recombination or whatever. You know how the, the genes, technically the alleles shuffle. And, and so there's a chance there's one kid that's not going to inherit it. But James Crow said, okay, if we get one new defect per individual, per generation, so if mom creates one defect and dad creates one defect, 
given the population, we're not going to be able to, you know, the reproductive excess, the number of kids people are having, we're not going to be able to recover it. So one strategy is to just keep trying and just like kind of rolling the dice until you get one that you get the role that you want. So keep and having so, kids till you have one that doesn't have. Right. Handful. That's yeah. basically it. Yeah. So the, when you work it out with a Poisson distribution at three mutations, every female needs to have 40 kids at about 10. Every female has to have 44,000. Mm-hmm. And Dan Grower was like, okay, this was a great, seen that I and someone else, Peter Leeds, uh, we managed to get Dr. Sanford to talk at the Mazar Auditorium at the NIH, October 18th, 2018. That was a big deal. A lot of the people, there was so much pushback, we thought it wasn't going to happen because he's a creationist. He's a young earth creationist. Mm-hmm. But because of his stature as a Cornell researcher and someone who has his invention in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History for his genetic work, he earned that right to speak. Yeah. And he was talking about human genetic deterioration. And, this and there's is Dr. this one, Sanford. Yes. Yep. There's this one scene in that I call it a scene because <laughs> if you clip it out, it was great. He was saying, Dan Grauer said, look, if you have a hundred mutations, which if you we accept the ENCODE numbers that say one hundred percent of the genome, eighty to one hundred percent of the genome is functional. That would mean given the mutation rates and given that most mutations are what they call deleterious, harmful, Mm -hmm. even slightly harmful, then the number of children each female needs to make is 10 to the 35th power. 10 to the 35th power. And (laughs) and Dan Grauer said, this is truly bonkers because evolutionary theory is true. If ENCODE is right, then evolution (laughs) is wrong because he said the only way to fix this is that it has to be junk. And so Dan Grauer gave the quote unquote better number of like 10 mutations. And then Dr. Sanford astutely said, look, that still means 44,000. That, that looks better, <laughs> but it's still 44,000 per female. Yeah, that's a really. And so the number that you quoted wow. 40 was from Nachman and Kroll and also Iyer Walker Keatley. Nachman and Kroll said, look, we don't know how to handle these 30. I mean, we don't even know how to handle three. So there has to be this thing called synergistic epistasis. We don't need to get into the theory of it. The point is, experiment will trump any ideas you have. uh, There you go. Darwin's bulldog, he got one thing right or close to it. He said, the tragedy of science, a single ugly fact can destroy a beautiful theory. We're getting a lot of these ugly facts. And I confronted Dr. Dan in my debate. I said, can you name one? Can you name one? (laughs) Geneticist, the prominence that thinks the human genome is getting better. And that was a debate I had in 2020 in the summer. Is this the same Dan Grauer or is this a different Dan? Oh, Dan Cardinale. I'm sorry, Dan Cardinale. Yeah. But in the last three years, I said, look, I'm finding all these experiments now that I overlooked. It didn't occur to me to look. And so Eugene Kunin, Wolf and Kunin, the genome reduction is the dominant mode of evolution. And then I yep. saw Lensky. I mean, evolutionists are just crowing and promoting all the work of Lensky. I said, well, you're missing one of his papers. Yeah. Genome decays despite sustained fitness gains. <laughs> and there's a lot yeah. of things. That's and amazing. I looked at that and I talked to someone who actually refuted Lensky, got published in Peer reviewed that Scott Minnick, Dustin von Hofwagen, and 
I can't pronounce the other professor's name. She's a distinguished professor, Havdi, something like that. Mm -hmm. If you're listening, please forgive me for mispronouncing your name. Three of them, the National Academy of Science, one of them reviewed and said, look, this is really good stuff. You're correct. It's got to be published. We're going to agree with you. Lenski's characterization was not correct, or at least it's questionable. And Scott Minnick on air said, look, there were some other things he wanted to say about our motivations, but the, he got overruled. You can't, you know, you can't say it's good work and then say, but your motivations are bad. So, yeah. you know, to be fair, so it's just pure science. Lenski did not understand the significance. Yeah. Uh, he, he misinterpreted a lot. The first thing is he had defective bacteria to begin with. And it turned out it was really easy to evolve these new capabilities. They're minor, they're minor, and we can yeah. get into that. Yeah. But Scott Minnick said, look at all the lines, they're all losing genes. He said the way it got better, I'd say instead of calling it natural selection, what it really is, a good approximation is just loss of versatility. I said, how do you evolve from microbes to a human being through loss of versatility? You know, we could say loss of genes. Yeah. And I mean, this has all come out just in the last year where I started looking. I said, let's, let's try to keep improving our case here. It's, we start laughing now when we read these titles. I just, it's like hard not to laugh. I said, you're practically giving it to us. Exactly. This uh, is all coming from secular evolutionists. Yes. Uh, so I, I have yeah. a question, and correct me if I'm wrong. When James Crow, when he came up with his number of three mutations, I'm pretty sure he was only looking at like 5% of the genome because back then they assumed that everything was junk except for maybe some small percentage and that we were 98% similar to chimps. So if I remember correctly, they were only looking at the introns for mutation rate. And so now that we have ENCODE years later, you actually have a much higher mutation rate because there's actually more of the genome that's functional. Is that correct? Is that why that number became higher? Why we went from 40 offspring best case revolutionist to now 10 to the 33rd power? <laughs> okay. 10 to the 35th. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> um, now, that could be the huge difference right there. Okay, Almost so, half the <laughs> molecules in the universe is the number of offspring of one woman has to have <laughs> for evolution to have a fighting okay. chance. Unfortunately, the history of this is really hard to reconstruct. Okay. But the science historians, if I get this wrong, you know, please correct the record. Yeah. But I think what happened is Ono decided... Nobel Prize winner Herman Mueller's 1950 paper are loaded mutations. If you look at it, it uses the haploid number of 0.5, which is the diploid number of one mutation per generation per individual. And Ono said, okay, now that we've kind of have an idea how big the genome is, he said, look, given that most changes to the genome will cause it even a slight defect and you can only tolerate one, this means since evolution is obviously true and the genome is big and then we acknowledge Herman Mueller, we can only tolerate one of this. So the implication is most of the genome has to be junk. So that's where it began. Uh -huh. Not by any empirical research. <laughs> right. Not by yeah. any. This was a myth that was begun by evolutionary biologists. It wasn't done because we actually knew what the genome did. We just barely... We hadn't yeah. even sequenced it at that time. We kind of weighed how much DNA was there and kind of estimated. So we didn't even know. So that's where the number came from. See, this is where I get a little upset with evolutionary biologists. I said, a lot of your ideas just came from your imagination. 
It didn't yeah, come exactly. from actual scientific research. This is doctrine. This is a religious belief. And I yeah. said, look, okay, I'm a man of faith. You are too, but you don't want to admit it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, hey, I feel like we're breaking news here on Real Science Radio, which isn't that unusual. But evolution's been dead, dead and buried for at least five years. <laughs> According to what I'm hearing here, if anyone would actually look at reality, but they're not looking at reality, are they? Yeah, it's hard to, to give up. And, you know, we have a lot, you know, I was a theistic evolutionist. And so I kind of know the the mindset. We can be quick to say it's all about they want to be immoral or whatever. And I'm just like, I think it's more nuanced than that. There is in science, even among Christians, and I, I think of like Arthur Eddington, as far as the Big Bang, he was a Quaker I consider him a believer. We tend to believe what we can understand. And if you at least have an illusion that you think you figured it out, then you're going to believe it. Yeah. What's happening uh. is that it's like we might have to accept that there are processes that, that we'll never comprehend, that we can't resolve in the laboratory. And that's kind of hard to give up. So even as a Christian, you know, it's like, as a Christian, we believe in eternal life. It's like, that's going to be a mechanism I'll never comprehend. I have to accept it by faith. And that is a little bit uncomfortable step. Or even Indeed. just like trusting God for the next day's provisions that yes, you're... Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to be careful and say, look, because I struggled, I nearly, the reason I got in creation science, I was really struggling with my faith. I nearly left. And thank God there were people like Fred Williams who had websites that I could visit, people like Walter and mine, and I kind of crawled through all this. So thank you for your website, and I still remember oh. your arguments. The exploding giraffe is still my <laughs> my favorite pictures on your website, your evolution fairy tale, and all your debates with Scott Page. Yeah, those uh, were yeah, those were uh, those were a lot of fun. Interesting. Yeah, some former <laughs> Army Ranger guy who had a PhD and worked up near Boston. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You remember that? So uh, I I nearly lost my faith. I nearly lost my faith, and I said, look, I lived a pretty Oh, life. It's like I, I never was the sort that would want to live rancorously or, you know, decadently. I, I love flying airplanes and I, I, mm -hmm. I love playing the piano. It, it wasn't like I was eager for a sinful lifestyle, so to speak. But you weren't you weren't like Freddie Mercury or anything. You're, you're just a guy. Yeah, you're right. But still just the ordinary Joe. And I said, look, I'm having all these doubts. And there did come a point. It's like, OK, I'm going to have to trust the greater power. For things i can't control and that's a little bit scary you know jesus said don't worry about your you know your food and clothing and your provisions seek ye first the kingdom and i was like okay this is kind of scary yeah. and so when it comes to the creation of life it's like you know it's it's kind of tough to say i can't tell you the mechanism i can only tell you i think it's a miracle of god a god we can comprehend and understand is no god whatsoever there's going to be a point he's going to have so much ability you're just not going to comprehend it. Yeah. And, and and so I think that's just a, kind of the uncomfortable thing. So, you know, why are they holding on to it? I think we're destroying their delusions and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Sal, we're actually out of time, but there is so much more I wanted to get to. And this is such a great conversation. Would you be willing to come back for a part two? Oh, Please. yes. Part three, part four, yeah. part five. <laughs> love um, it, man. There All is, right. Yeah, this is a great opportunity to kind of show kind of the cutting edge of where I think both intelligent design and creation science are going. Yes. You know, yeah. 
you're seeing the cutting edge of it at this point. Well, I definitely have heard some of it today. It's it's amazing. It's amazing what we haven't seen. And I want to definitely want to have you back, Sal, to talk about more. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so for Doug McBurney and Sal Cordova, I'm Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. Intelligent design and DNA. Scholars can't explain it all away. Yeah.